Welcome to the Stott Legacy. He is within us. He shares in the pain and identifies him. We must not ask God to change his timetable because we're getting a little bit impatient. Or think of the beginning of the first letter of Peter when he says that we were chosen by God the Father. It is 2021 and this marks the centenary of the birth of John Stott in central London. He holds a unique place in 20th century church history, not just because of his impact on the British church, but because of his impact on the global church. So throughout the year, we will meet a broad range of people from across the world, both women and men who knew him and worked closely with him, as well as those who never met him, but were nevertheless shaped by his preaching and writing. My name is Mark Mennell, and I hope you will join me as we explore inspiration, challenges, and insights from the life of Uncle John. The closer I got to him personally, the more I saw the way that his total surrender and submission to the Lordship of Jesus was utterly integrated into every part of his life and the way that he treated, you know, the taxi cab driver and the way that he handled his own personal expenses and his personal lifestyle um just everything it was just he was thoroughly integrated surrendered follower of jesus that was corey widmer who was john stott's study assistant for three years in the late 90s for many years john would have someone to work alongside him usually a young university graduate and often though not always someone from the united states John would refer to his happy triumvirate, a working trio made up of himself, his study assistant, and of course his trusty right-hand and long-term secretary, Frances Whitehead. We heard from her in a previous episode. Corey is now a pastor in the United States where he's been working for the last nine years on a PhD, which he has now successfully completed. So I caught up with a very relieved Corey while he and his daughter actually happened to be forced into isolation because of a COVID contact. So we're here obviously to talk about Uncle John and you uh, worked very closely with him as one of his famed study assistants for a few years. I did. Um, How did that come about? I went to university with my predecessor, um, whose name is John Yates who's now rector of a Anglican church in North Carolina in the United States. And John was a mentor of mine at uh, the University of Virginia. And John's family has long ties to Uncle John. And so John had been tapped, um, little John, John Yates had been tapped by Uncle John to serve. Um, And so he, when he graduated from University of Virginia, he he moved over to London to work for him and um, John was three years older than I. So when John was finishing his term, Uncle John... And it was always a three-year term, was it? Well, it was always a two-year. If if Uncle John <laughs> thought it was working out okay, he would he would maybe offer another year. I think the longest a study assistant ever served was four, and the shortest was one. So yeah, when, he, when, when John Yates was finishing up, Uncle John asked him who he recommended, and uh, John Yates recommended me. And so... Uncle John was in Chicago for a Langham event, so I flew up and spent the weekend with him. And really, I, I mean, we just spent time together and to see if we got along okay. Had you met him before? I had I had not met him before. 
Um, I had read a couple of his books, certainly had heard of him, but knew, knew actually not very much about him at all. Um, the first time I remember encountering his name even was when I was um, 18 at the Urbana Mm. Um, missions conference and I saw his book basic Christianity that was prominently displayed that was the first time I'd even heard of him um, despite growing up in the evangelical American um, culture um, so yeah we got along we had a similar sense of humor we both like chocolate do you like birds <laughs> no um, <laughs> I do now I'm a convert of course you do I mean three years intense yeah. mentoring my first day of the job, when I showed up, there was a brand new pair of binoculars and on your a, desk, on my desk and a field guide. I still remember Birds of Europe by Lars Johnson uh, <laughs> sitting, sitting on my desk. Uh, and it was just so it wasn't a Bible commentary or anything. No, nope, that was it. <laughs> Those two tools and every place we went, whether it was Eastern Europe or India or um, Hong Kong or um, wherever, we would always take anywhere from three days to a week to work with, to partner with a local ornithologist and spend bird watching. So you, do you know what you're expecting? I mean, obviously knowing John Yates means that you have an idea of what he's been up to. How much did those first few months meet with, you know, the expectations or an anticipation of working with him? I think I was pretty excited about doing the work, but very unsure of what it would be like and who this person would be. Um, I think the two things that initially struck me were one, um, how is it that this old man has such an intense work ethic? <laughs> he, um, yes. I mean, I, I... So what year was this? It was... 1999 to 2003. So I actually oh, wow. had an interesting tenure because it was during my tenure that he really slowed down. So mm. my first couple of years, um, he was going at the same pace he'd been going at for years. I mean, in terms of writing and speaking and traveling, but about two thirds of the way through my tenure, so around when he was 80, in fact, mm -hmm. yeah, he had had a, when actually when we were in India, he'd had an embolism. It was pretty mm -hmm. serious. Even we thought it would be fatal. Um, and he really slowed down. But I think the thing that was, and I always say this to people, I think you hear these stories of um, well-known Christian leaders. And then unfortunately, you often hear that when people really get to know them, um, you see that there was a pretty big split between their public personality and their private self. And there often can be disillusionment as you encounter hypocrisy and other things. Yeah. But um, it was actually the opposite with me, with Uncle mm -hmm. John. The, the closer I got to him personally, the more mm -hmm. I saw the way that his total surrender and submission to the Lordship of Jesus was utterly integrated into every part mm -hmm. of his life and the way that he treated, you know, the taxi cab driver and the way that he handled his own personal expenses and his personal lifestyle um, just everything. It was just, he was thoroughly integrated, surrendered follower of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so that, that was, um, pretty amazing to me. Cause I had, that was mm -hmm. at, at, at that point in my life, and probably still the most Christ-like person I had ever kind of walked with. 
and I, on a close day to day basis. You know, I, I was really glad I got to spend three years with him because the first year I was just like in awe. This guy is amazing, and I'm, I want to drink from everything that he has to offer. Uh, I was voraciously learning and reading everything that I could learn, and um, and then the second year, um, I, I think I just became a lot more cynical, um, mm. and I started to you know come against things that I disagreed with him about or things that I thought or even just his his way of of you know just like anything when you live with someone um you just start coming against things that start to annoy you and and then and frustrate you and then in the and so my second year I was more at that place and then my third year I was more at a place of joyful um realistic uh love with Uncle John Mm -hmm. where I, there were things that I just loved and rejoiced over. And then there were other things where I just thought, you know, we're just different in this way, but mm. a story about that. So my, um, probably, this was probably in that second year where I was a bit more cynical every day at 10 AM, I would bring him a cup of coffee every day at 4 PM. I'd bring him a cup of tea and he would always inevitably be absorbed, completely absorbed in his work. And I would sit the cup down next to him and he would, mutter these words uh thank you i'm not worthy and he would say that every day he'd say i'm not worthy i'd give him a cup of coffee i'm not worthy i'd give him a cup of coffee i'm not worthy and after a while i started getting really annoyed by it because <laughs> i was like this is so pious and unnecessary mm. you know like <laughs> i'm not worthy of a cup of coffee so one day i was just feeling a bit cheeky and i he, i set the cup Fight of coffee you. down he said i'm not worthy and i said sure you are <laughs> sure you are worthy <laughs> And he stopped, which he never did. He stopped, extracted himself from the intensity of his laser focus, which looked like it required incredible effort and pain to, you know, extract himself. And he turned and he looked at me and he said, you haven't got your theology of grace right. (laughs) And I just... Um and you I, said, I'm not worthy. Uh, and I just sort of smirked and I was like, and I said, and again, this is when I was feeling a bit cheeky. I said, Uncle John, it's only a cup of coffee. And he said, my dear Corey, it's just the thin end of the wedge. <laughs> so this was a sort of conflict that we would sometimes have. And, you know, it took me a while to understand what he was saying. Of course, what he was meaning that if you really believe in grace, then you will see grace as not just something that has to do with your eternal salvation, but that you will see grace as running through every single part of your life, even a cup of coffee, um, seeing that everything that you have is a gift. Well, it's that integrated word again, isn't it? Yes, exactly. It took me a bit to wrestle with some of those things. But... Okay, so every day you're bringing him a cup of coffee and a cup of tea, and I think just one biscuit, wasn't it? Not two. Just one, yeah, one biscuit, yeah. and usually only once a day. And right, presumably though, you had other tasks. So, mm-hmm. and you, um, you lived and worked next door. Um, did you? So when I lived in London, when we were in London, I lived about a, I don't know, maybe three, two or three kilometers away, in oh. Bayswater, um, and would ride my bike or take the tube every day to work, and be with him. Fairly normal, normal work days, unless we had something in the evening. Um, but then, yeah, but then when we would go to Hooksis, which is his writing cottage in Southwest Wales, 
were when we would travel, obviously it was more of a 24 seven thing. Um, at the Hooksis, the, the cottage where the study assistant stayed mm -hmm. was a separate outbuilding than the little hut where Uncle John stayed. And when he could actually see, he could look out his window and see the windows of the cottage where the study assistant stayed. And so um, one of the first things that John Yates told me is that the secret had been handed down to him <laughs> through the generations of study assistants that when Uncle John woke up at 5 a.m. to have his quiet time, he would look out the window to see if the study assistant was up. And so what the study assistants would do is they would wake up at 4.55, turn on the light, and then go back to sleep. <laughs> so that Uncle John... I would have just got a timing plug and just not even had to do that. <laughs> exactly. That would have been really smart. <laughs> so, Oh, that's funny. I mean, so, so for example, when I first started with him, he was working on the London Lectures in Contemporary Christianity, which eventually became the book, The Incomparable Christ. Right. And that book involved a lot of research because um, he had a whole section that was based on historical figures. He had a whole section that was based on the Gospels. He had a whole section that's based on the Book of Revelation. So um, I would be spending a lot of time in libraries and doing research. He was very fastidious about being exact with his references and um, he didn't ever want to make any sort of sloppy mistakes. And so I would often be tracking down primary sources. Um, and he was also very humble in the way that he would ask us to do editing work. I mean, he would always say he wants the young person's perspective. And so we would do um, lots of editing um, of the works that he was writing on. Um, and then just um, if you have someone for tea, we would, we would um, be responsible for, you know, maybe picking up the person, hosting them, preparing the tea. Um, mm. We, you know, at the time when I was with him, he wasn't able to drive anymore. So I would serve as his driver. Sometimes I would just do busy work for him, like fetching prescriptions. Um, when we would travel, I would often serve literally as his bodyguard. I mean, there were, mm. he was, he was quite the celebrity, especially in Africa and Asia. Um, so I would often need to be his minder in those mm. circumstances. Um, so it was just a wonderful job. It was a wonderful collection of both intensely cerebral activities and also just, um, fun, practical, logistical work. Um, so. I guess maybe this picks up what you were saying earlier that, you know, the, the disparity between people's public persona and the reality on the ground actually very often it seems that these figures who've had major collapses never let anybody in that close. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. John would let you be involved in every aspect of his life. So actually there was a greater incentive to be consistent for him. It was yeah. harder to hide. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's so, so true, Mark, that it's been so sad to see so many prominent Christian figures um, have these moral failures. And I do, I think you're right. I think that, I mean, certainly it involved his own private integrity, his personal mm -hmm. submission to, to, to Christ. Um, and he had a, he had an abnormal degree of um, personal discipline and self-control. Mm -hmm. um, but you're right. He also lived a transparent life. Um, mm -hmm. Both, both Francis and myself, um, were everything that was everything in his life ran through us he we, everything mm. <laughs> in fact one 
one time um, Francis took Fridays off. So I would be, I would serve as doing just some of the office work on Fridays. And one time I opened the mail on a Friday and there was um, a postcard, no, a letter. I opened the letter and it said, my dearest John, I have finally found the perfect place for us to steal away together this cottage and so-and-so uh, please meet me there or contact me here at this information signed. It was some woman. And I was very alarmed. I thought, oh my goodness, you know, I've just, I've just stumbled into some, some salacious affair. Mm -hmm. So I called Francis and I said, uh, Francis, and I told her what the letter was. And I said, what do I do? And she said, oh, she sends that letter every Friday. Just throw it in the rubbish. Um, wow. So you really are being a bodyguard. <laughs> yeah, you might know there are just many women who, um, I mean, Uncle John mm -hmm. certainly could have had an salacious affair if he wanted to, mm -hmm. but he, he just, uh, he, he, he just let Francis and the study assistants and everyone just kind of run everything through him, through the, through us. And mm -hmm. he didn't even give himself the opportunity for any kind of yeah. temptation. Now that woman in particular was, um, was, was uh, not was was mentally not all there um so mm -hmm. she was living an illusion but um but there were other situations yes. where you know there were very serious mm -hmm. situations where he could have fallen into temptation and he was just living because he was so committed to living this transparent life mm -hmm. um he was able to maintain such integrity mm -hmm. so. i mean that's such a powerful witness This week's book review is by Simon Folds, who works as the Support and Development Manager for Langham Partnership UK and Ireland. The book he's thinking about is John's final book, The Radical Disciple. John wrote this book in 2010, uh, his last book, uh, before passing to glory the following year. In the book, uh, a relatively short book, 140 pages or so, he shares eight characteristics he thinks all radical disciples of Christ should have. Eight short chapters, easily used perhaps for a home group. And that's what I did last year with our young adult group. We just spent eight weeks going through the eight characteristics, discussing them, debating them, praying about them. And there's the main reason uh, I want to recommend this book. If it's one of the main outcomes I'd like to see in this centenary year of John Stott's birth, it's to introduce a new audience, a new generation uh, to John's writing and teaching. And this book is ideal. Relatively short, easy to use in a group, a group full of students perhaps. People John Stott was passionate about sharing the gospel with. And written as if it was yesterday, looking at subjects such as Creation care, simplicity and balance of life, subjects everyone should be passionate about. And here's a book supporting them, perhaps even more so for a younger generation in these subjects. I want to go back to the, the research of the book, um, The Incomparable Christ, which is a wonderful book. I, I wonder... In you know he would send you off on little errands to libraries and and so on. Was he I just what was his process like? Was he quite specific? Did he know exactly what he was after, or did he let you go down sort of rabbit holes um, and sort of come up with stuff? It's a good question. He would. I mean, 
you know better than anyone, Mark, because I think that you did have have done a lot of um, culling and analyzing and putting together of his decades of research mm. and the quotations and other things mm -hmm. that he gathered. And so he had these, as you know, he had these massive catalogs um, that he would maintain um, of references and quotes and previous talks and articles and that sort of thing. And so he often would have a pretty good sense of the direction that he would want to go, but especially in the case of this, this book, which honestly was a lot of very new material for him. It was, um, mm. he was writing little snippets. For example, one chapter, he was writing little snippets of people who had been inspired by Christ. And so there was a lot of historical research. He did, as you know, he did a whole chapter on the book of Revelation, which he had never done anything on Revelation. And so he was just reading massive amounts of books on Revelation. Um, so he would often, you know, he would maybe in a book that he was reading that he had accessible to him, he would find encounter some anecdote or a quote or a reference, but he really wanted to pursue it further to get to the primary source. And so he would send me off to try to find that. And sometimes I would find it, other times I would find another reference, or sometimes I would find something that would be more helpful that would help take him right. a different direction. Um, so he would often have a lot of clarity about what he was doing and where he was going. Um, and I would be more doing filling out confirmation, um, helping um, provide uh, validity of a primary source, that, that sort of thing. I mean, I remember a couple of times he would say like, I know, I'm pretty sure Augustine said this. Could you please read all of Augustine and find out where he said it? Pre-internet. It was pre-internet. He would never just be content to say in a book like Augustine said and then say the quote without a reference. He would never do that. Um, yeah. so. And even less say, I've heard it said that. That's never, what we all do. Never. He would never say that. Yeah. Did you find that there were um, things where actually things you discovered, you could reshape or change his direction a little bit? I can remember a couple of occasions, especially when it came to those, um, those anecdotal bits. Um, you know, I also worked with him on um, his book, um, Pe The Pe Pe People, My Teachers. Did you ever, it's a pretty oh, yeah, obscure yeah, yeah. book that he wrote. It was parallel he, with he, the birds, my teachers. Yeah, a lot of success in the book Birds, Birds, My Teachers, um, and so he really wanted to write this other book that was about all the people that had inspired him um, throughout his life, and so that also was a book of chapters of different, various different anecdotes about people. Um, and so, example, I remember write a chapter that we were writing on Darwin. He was actually really interested in writing a whole chapter on Charles Darwin. Um, because even though Darwin obviously was not an Orthodox Christian, his naturalism was really inspiring for Uncle John and the way that he was able to um, see the world as a book of God's creation. But um, there's just a lot of debate out there in the Christian world about the nature of Darwin's convictions and the nature of his belief, if there was any, and his understanding or fidelity to any degree of Orthodoxy Christian faith. So I ended up reading a lot about Darwin and would have debates or, or just try to help, not debates with Uncle John, but just try to help help, help him know how to frame, out. Arti articulate mm -hmm. the kind of person that Darwin was, especially as it related to his personal faith. So we were able together, I think initially he was maybe approaching it one way, but I think together we were able to shape mm -hmm. a, a way that he felt better about talking about Darwin.
in his own face. So that's just an example of that. How... Was there blowback from that? Having oh, yeah. There? Yeah, yeah, I mean... Because um, he's such a bogeyman in some quarters. I know, I know. I mean, and I, and I just... I mean, there's so many ways that I just continue to grow in my admiration for Uncle John, even, even you know, years and years after later after working for him. Um, but one of the ways is that he just didn't, he, he just, he, he was not afraid to, um, traverse into controversial territory. It was the Americans always that would, um, that would give the biggest blowback. Um, I mean, why do you think that is? Well, there's, I mean, we could have a whole podcast about that, but there's, (laughs) there is such a deep, um, polarization within American evangelicalism. Mm. Um, and there's a, the the specter of fundamentalism um, has never been truly excised from mm-hmm. American evangelicalism. And a lot of that was forged in the fundamentalist um, liberal debates of the early 20th century. Mm-hmm. And so there's just very little room for nuance within American evangelicalism. Um, it's either that, you know, you accept a seven day creation account or you are wicked or, yeah. you know, you are, um, you know, you, you believe in um, eternal uh, everlasting conscious damnation or you are a heretic. Which is so um, anathema to the way John was, isn't it? No, no. I mean, he was just a master of nuance. And he yeah. understood better than anyone that there's some things about scripture that are very, very clear. Um, and then there's other things about scripture where it is not nearly as clear, where we need to have humility and open hands um, about it. And there just wasn't that capacity. There isn't that capacity in American evangelicalism. I mean, even even just the, I know that you interviewed Ruth Ruth Padilla divorced recently. And I mean, his, Uncle John's whole uh, conflict with the American evangelicalism, Lausanne, was, yeah. a, a, was a great example of that, where um, they very much wanted to define the, the mission of the global church exclusively around evangelism. And Uncle John, because of the influence that Rene Padilla and other Latin American theologians had had on him, he went to battle yeah. uh, on their behalf and over and against the Americans to say that um, the mission of God includes justice and mercy and compassion and alleviation of, of poverty. And um, and again, like just another example where his capacity to read the Bible carefully and to read it, to read into its nuance, um, mm-hmm. enabled him to see things that other people can't, couldn't see then. And maybe still think that, you know, I think that now in some ways, American evangelicalism is finally, hopefully coming into some of that nuance that Uncle John was trying to, <laughs> trying to advocate. There's for. a paradox there then, isn't there? Because I can't remember who it was, but someone in a previous conversation mentioned that there was always a a bit of a soft spot in American evangelicals for British Anglicans. Yes, J.I. Packer and John Stott and... Michael Green and, and co. Mm-hmm. Exactly, yeah. So the paradox, it seems to me, is that um, the master of nuance has quite a following in the States. Is mm-hmm. it people perhaps who are crying out for that and say, at last, here's somebody who can help us through this this sort of great partition? I think so. Um I, I think that um, there have been, uh, you know, I, I know so many people, especially within, I guess you would call it the um, centrist evangelicals um, that that really value, that, that, that deeply valued Uncle John's voice um, as someone who represented 
a more robust, um, capacious global understanding of evangelicalism that seemed to transcend the constant um, like political polarizations that exist within our context. And I have sort of a little um, personal project right now of trying to um, reclaim Uncle John for a new a new uh, movement of younger evangelical mm -hmm. leaders. Um, because I think that he, his, his cultural humility, um, his capacity for nuance, his rejection of fundamentalism, um, his uh, commitment to reject cultural superiority when it comes to the mission of the gospel, his rejection of like personality-based ministry, mm -hmm. his, um, his commitment to the marginalized. I mean, all of these things represent so much of what younger evangelicals are longing for. Yes. Um, and I, I just, I, I want, and yet no, so many of them haven't even heard of him. And so mm, I'm really right. trying to, I just wrote a, a piece on his, for his commemoration of his hundredth birthday mm. a few months ago on, uh, uh, Missy Alliance, um, mm. network, um, sort of holding him out, commending him mm. as a necessary, an ongoing voice that can provide guidance among, among others. From fairly soon after he became rector at All Souls, at the age of only 29, John started being invited to speak at various events, uh, university mission weeks and conferences. In those earlier years, he'd focus on the English-speaking world, mainly North America and Australia, New Zealand. This was, of course, still the time of the British Empire, uh, albeit in its closing years. But soon he would go much further afield, all over the world. Especially for the longer trips, he would often take his study assistant with him. So I asked Corey about particular highlights that he remembered from his travels with John. Well, his goal was always to do three months at the Hooksis, three months traveling and six months in London. And that was what he was able to maintain for many years. Um, I think my first year with him, um, we got close to that. But then the second and third year was much less just because his, mm. his health started to, to fail. Mm. Um, and then I think by the time that I had left, I think that he really scaled it back pretty dramatically. Um, but we would go for, you know, like we would, we, when we went to Asia together, we went to India and the Philippines and Hong Kong. And I think we were gone for almost five weeks straight. And Goodness. that's just yeah. a lot for, I mean, it was a lot for me as a young man. It was a, certainly a lot for him as an almost 80 year old. In, in fact, it was on that trip that he fell um, and cut, cut his, his um, leg pretty badly. And we were having to go to hospitals in India and we were, I was on the phone with this cardiologist back in London all the time. It was very scary. In fact, I had to, I had to, um, I had to give a talk on his behalf at a conference for Indian pastors um, because this cardiologist basically said he cannot do that. He can't get up yeah. off of his back right now. So I took his notes and gave his talk at this conference. I hope he got his accent right. I, I tried. And afterwards, <laughs> afterwards, all these pastors were coming up to me and they were wanting my autograph. <laughs> and I said, I'm not, I said, you do not want my autograph. I am not John Stott. And they said, 
but you're the closest thing to him we have right now. <laughs> you're the, the image of Stott. Yes. Um, wow. So I think, I think the thing that struck me most in those travels with him globally, Mark, were, um, I know I've used this phrase cultural humility um, several times, um, but I do think that there's still, even to this day among evangelicals, uh, cultural triumphalism um, that, that sees us as sort of um, bringing uh, enlightenment to the global church. Um, and, you know, he would very much could have been capitulated to that with his particular background and, you know, being raised in the upper crust, uh, post-colonial Britain. Um, but he certainly was passionate about serving and helping the pastors in the church of the global south but i never felt like it was because he wanted to help uplift them it was always because he thought this is the future of the church the, these are these are the people that are leading they're going to be leading us forward into the next generation this is the shift where the church the church's epicenter is shifting these directions and what we can most do as western christians is use our resources to support this this movement as as the global south more and more becomes the epicenter of global christianity um and so he was always a posture of a learner even even as people clamor to hear from him that's a fascinating distinction that you made between wanting to raise people up presumably the implication of doing that is up to my level yes yes contrasted with um this is where the kingdom is going. And so our job is to serve the kingdom. Right. And if that means these people are in charge or in leadership, well, we go with that. It's not up for us to decide otherwise. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, some of the two people who had those, you know, two different attitudes might be doing similar work, but their motivations are really different. And, and those motivations will come out in the way that they treat people, um, in the way that they approach culture, and I, I just always was impressed by the sense that Uncle John was doing this out of cultural humility. He saw that this is this is this is where the spirit's moving, um, and he wanted to be a part of it. That's so helpful. What were the funniest or, or happiest times on these trips? Bird watching aside, obviously, the funniest probably were always how he would handle food, because you know as much. As much of a global person he was, he was such a bland Brit in so many ways. Like he just, he, he hated spicy food. He hated food with flavor. Um, and so, you know, we would we would be in these places that had the most incredible food. I remember we were in Hong Kong, we were at the Szechuan restaurant, the most incredible Chinese food I'd ever eaten. And he like would take the, the, the host aside and ask for like a single chicken breast with some plain rice, you know, <laughs> with some plain rice, no, you know, and I, I, or we would have the most amazing, like they would pull out their best bottle of Merlot or something. And Uncle John would like sneak out a bottle, a, you know, a little packet of sweet and low and dump it into his glass of wine. I mean, I, <laughs> really, I've not heard that before. He was just, he had such a, he just, he just, yeah, wow. he did not have, for such a sophisticated man, he had very unsophisticated palate. <laughs> That is amazing. <laughs> it's funny that the Lord distributes his gifts unequally, doesn't he? <laughs> I know. 
Yeah. Wow. So, but we um, had great fun on those travels, and he just he just had the most amazing friends from mm -hmm. all over the world, and it was such a privilege to meet these people and to see the joy, the genuine friendships that Uncle John has. Um, they were not paternalistic in any way. They were genuine friendships, and they were so full of laughter. And you know, my 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 own life is so enriched by getting to encounter so many of these people. I, I would completely wholeheartedly agree, and I think that's one of the things I love most about working for Langham is that that you know, even with a huge proportion of staff who didn't even meet him that spirit still continues in many ways um mm. friendship being the key mm. yeah as we draw things together a little bit i wonder you know you've been in local church ministry now you've been a student for well as a phd student for nine years and that's sorted now can you identify perhaps one or two ways in which your subsequent life and ministry was shaped by those three years by Uncle John's side, as it were. Yeah, um, I mean, certainly one is preaching. I, um, I, I was raised in an evangelical Presbyterian church, but it was not a church that practiced expositional preaching. It was more of a typical American way of preaching, which is sort of, you have a theme or something, like I'm gonna talk about biblical marriage or something, and you mm -hmm. sort of pick out verses and, and you tell some stories and tell some jokes and you know that that was sort of the kind of preaching that I was raised on so really um uncle john's way of preaching of really working through a text and seeing how god's message emerges from the text and then um and then bringing that text faithfully and applying it to the context of the community was really impacting for me and um so you know for for 15 years now, I see, you know, my primary calling now is a preacher. Um, and his, his influence is just enormous on the way that I understand what my, what my call is, what my vocation is, but it's not to be funny or to tell really great stories or, um, you know, have some great, um, really moving ideas that make people think I'm really smart. I mean, hopefully I, I do tell good stories and hopefully that I am occasionally funny, <laughs> um, but I don't see that as my primary yeah. calling or vocation. Um, so that's one big thing. Um, uh, I, I, another thing that has hugely impacted um, me is just his, something what we've been talking about already, which is just his understanding what I would call a, a big four chapter gospel. Um, mm -hmm. I think the gospel that I was, given was as a youth was a, a two chapter gospel. It was really a fall redemption gospel, you know, chapter two and three where, you know, we're all sinners and Jesus saved us. And that's beautiful. And that's part of the gospel, but the gospel I really learned from Uncle John is a four chapter gospel that begins with creation and ends with consummation. You know, it's a, mm -hmm. it's a gospel that includes God's creative work in all things. And therefore includes things like creation care, includes things like justice, includes things like work and vocation. Um, Uncle John, the reason he was able to write books like Issues Facing Christians Today um, is because he was a person who believed in the big gospel, the big biblical gospel that included uh, a restoration of all things. And so I really tried to make that to be a mark of my pastoral ministry. So, for example, this past year, when much of the United States has been embroiled in debate about um, our racial history 
and how the history of slavery and um, Jim Crow laws and uh, and um, oppression of African Americans in our society, um, how that affects our modern contemporary life. Um, that's just a huge debate, and it's a very it's a debate that has caused much controversy within the United States within the Christian Church. But I, even though Uncle John didn't address those things explicitly. I am internally taking a lot of my cues from him because I know he for certain the tools he gave me the to tools that I need to know how to address this to say, mm. you know, um, to read the Bible carefully, to see the ways that the Bible speaks both to personal injustice and systemic institutional injustice, um, to look at ways that um, the Bible can help us as people of privilege, to surrender our privilege and to really seek to be led by those who are on the margins. Um, yeah. So I continue to take, I think, many of my cues from him in the way that I want to um, present the biblical gospel. Corey, that's that's wonderful and um, very inspiring. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mark, time. for inviting me to speak. For our prayer point this time, it would be good to focus on something that has been pushed out of the news bulletins by events following the US withdrawal from Afghanistan with all the alarming consequences that that has brought. And this is the news of uh, the country of Haiti. As a nation, they seem to go from one catastrophe to another. And the last few months have been no exception. In July, their president was assassinated along with uh, his wife being badly injured. And then a month later, they suffered a devastating earthquake, resulting in over 2,000 deaths, 12,000 injured, and the destruction of perhaps 140,000 buildings. And in the midst of all this, there is still a thriving church, and we have many brothers and sisters there. And there is a Langham preaching movement in Haiti. But life, uh, as it's almost impossible to imagine, is incredibly tough. So please do pray for our friends and partners there especially for the Langham preaching team led by Dr. Genson Charlot. Pray for their perseverance and faithfulness in this vital work. You've been listening to The Stop Legacy with me, Mark Mennell. Thank you very much for listening. In particular, I want to thank Vic Marseille, my colleague uh, who works with Langham Partnership UK and Ireland. She has been slogging away in the background, working very hard, putting all the ingredients to these episodes together, editing and polishing and producing a first-class job. If you want to find out more about uh, Langham Partnership, you can go to langham.org, that is L-A-N-G-H-A-M.org. Also, if you want to find out more about John Stott himself and anything that's happening for this centenary year, then go to the website johnstott, all one word, .org. And on that site, you'll find a blog for this podcast with links and photographs for each episode. That's johnstott.org forward slash podcast. Until next time, goodbye.